0: This week on It Starts With Attraction. Hey, my name is Jason. I'm one of the producers of It Starts With Attraction. And today we're looking back on a few of the best moments from 2022. Let's dive in.
1: There's a process to falling in love and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, And maybe more importantly to yourself, it starts with attraction and it starts now.
0: We're starting off the show with one of the biggest highlights of the year from all the way back in May. This is from episode 100. Finding Hope Inside of Loneliness with Bachelor star Ben Higgins.
2: You speak openly about your faith, the fact that you're a Christian. Yeah. Was there any point, either being on the show or even after the show or before the show, that your beliefs and values were challenged?
3: Oh my gosh, yes. Um, I mean, I came from a very small, very conservative, very Christian town in Northern Indiana.
4: Mm. I love
3: that town. Uh, it's a great town. It's not the best town to get a picture of the world.
5: <laughs> um,
4: yeah.
3: And so I came on the show and walked into LA. And for the, I mean, I'd never been to LA until the show. And so all of a sudden you get on a set with a bunch of people pulling things out of you emotionally and asking you really hard questions and producers asking you really hard questions about why you stand for what you stand for. And then mm. you're former or your castmates um, spending a lot of time just talking about life and knowing that um, I spoke openly about some values and some morals that I had, but also know like some of those values and values and morals didn't match up to what they knew of as a, what they would think of as a Christian. So like I maybe was a little more lenient on things. Maybe I didn't see the world in the same way. And so having people ask you, why do you stand for that? And why don't you stand for this? Was tough the whole time. And also you're, you know, one of the greatest gifts I believe in my faith is God's gift of community to us. So friendships, relationships, family, when you go on a show like that, that's all taken away from you. You don't have a cell phone, you don't have internet, you don't have TV to like connect with these people anymore. And so Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it was being on on my own Island and really leaning on um, my God to support me, to pray to, to give me some clarity, those things like, and a lot of times I, I trusted my friends and my family in that. And so it was a test of faith. I, I don't feel like it was at any level. It wasn't a great thing. Um, it brought me closer. It, may, it gave me a lot of time to, to meditate. Uh, you just don't have to do a lot when you're not on dates. And so you have a lot of time just to start thinking. And, uh, and the more I thought, and the more I meditated, and the more I kind of processed in my thoughts, the, um, the closer I I got, uh, I felt like, um, to, to, to God.
1: Mm.
2: That's good. You have written a book. It's called alone in plain sight.
6: Yeah.
2: And the tagline is searching for connection when you're seen, but not known. Mm. You kind of mentioned at the beginning of this saying you were looking to shake things up in life. And that's one of the reasons you went on the bachelor. Did you feel this way before going on the bachelor or yeah. was it something amplified
3: after no before you know it's hard i i even have friends now from the show that almost um joke at me about that uh you know my i, I think my my i know my storyline was i was unlovable i didn't mean it like i wasn't lovable i had great family that loved me and friendships mm-hmm. that loved me i felt like i was unlikable i felt like the more i was myself and the more people would get to know me the less they would like me Um, Hmm. and, uh, and as a result, uh, the less they would want to invest into me. Um, and so that's always been an insecurity. It it hasn't gone away. It's still something even in my marriage that I have to, um, stay attuned to, to make sure that I'm not putting that onto my wife and putting those pressures and onto her. Um, but it's always been there. It's been there since I was a kid. I felt like the outsider. I felt like uh, I I didn't fit in. I felt like there was something different about me, um, which, you know, it's why the Truman show, the old movie with Jim Carrey freaked me out so much. That's kind of how I felt my life was that like everybody else was in on something that I just didn't understand, um, which is funny that then I go on to be on reality television because that just heightens the insecurity. But no, it's it's always been there. And, um, that's why I wanted to write about it because I, I, I thought, okay, if I have felt this way, when a million, when millions of people have watched me on television and criticized me, but also give me a lot of support, then, um, how's the teenager feeling who has no clue what their life's about to bring? Um, but maybe has some pain and sorrow in their own life. And they're swirling, swirling in circles, not knowing where their community is going to come from or or what tomorrow is going to bring. How are they handling it? How are they feeling it? And do they feel alone? So I want to write a book to, for anybody out there who has felt alone to maybe think, say that, hey, if I felt alone and you felt alone, by default, we're not alone.
0: Next on our list is a snippet from June 13th. This is from an episode Kimberly did herself. This is Do What You Love Without Sacrificing Who You Love, Episode 106.
2: Growing up, I was never really in want for much of anything. My dad was a very successful speaker. He was traveling all over the world doing corporate sales training, but also he was very successful and well-known in the church world as well. And he would go and he would do great things. He one year even worked with a small division of Sears in in their sales training, and he helped that division triple their sales in one quarter which was fantastic. I can only imagine if all of Sears had decided to work with him, then maybe they wouldn't be bankrupt today. But he was good at what he did. And when he would speak at churches, it moved people and encouraged them and influenced them to change their life and to do better things. And if any of the listeners know my dad, Dr. Joe Beam, then you know that he has a gift for speaking. And I admired my dad for it all of my years growing up, I really, really did. And because of his success, I had everything I could have ever wanted, except for the credit card that I started asking for at five years old, which I never did get. I had everything I could want, except for one thing. It was at the height of my dad's speaking career. That year, he was traveling about 40 weeks of the year, that is how busy he was. And I really spent most of my time with my dad when my mom and I were either driving him to the airport, or picking him up when he got home from some kind of speaking engagement that he went to do. And it was in that time at that year, that and even probably the year that he maybe even made the most money of his life. That one day he was gearing up to leave again for another trip. I didn't know where. I didn't know to who. All I knew is that he was about to go. And there were some things that he forgot that he had to go pack for his trip. And I needed to go to Walmart to pick some things up. And so I went with him, eager to spend some time with him before he flew out. And as we were coming back from Walmart late at night, I was about eight years old. I looked over at him and I said, Dad, I know why you love to travel so much. In later years, we would talk about this and he would recount to me that his heart swelled with pride as he was eager to hear how I would hopefully say, because of all the good he was doing or because of all the lives that he was changing, but his heart broke when instead my response was, it's because you don't want to spend time with me. My dad had a decision to make in that moment. Was he going to spend the rest of my time living at home, the next 10 years, continuing this high-paced lifestyle and chasing success? Or was he going to admit that perhaps by doing what he loved, he was sacrificing being with who he loved? Success. It's such a strange word because when you actually look at the dictionary definition of it, it has nothing to do with money. But it is laced with undertones of million-dollar mansions, sleek and sexy cars, and extraordinary experiences, extravagant indulgences. Surely success is somehow tied to a paycheck or a promotion or a title because that's what so many people are chasing. And it's not that any of those things are bad. I think it is a great ambition to want to provide nice things and a great life for your family and to want to be generous to those around you. I think it is honorable to want to leave a legacy for your future generations to come. But my question to you today is at what cost? It was at the same time that I was asking my dad the question of why he loved to travel so much and would he consider being home with me, that there was a very successful realtor in the state that I grew up in, in Georgia. He was the top realtor in the entire state. So you can imagine how much money he was making. And he was speaking at a convention, at a sales conference, and he got up on stage and he said to the people, you know, sometimes my kids complain because I'm not there for them. They whine, they they talk about it, and so what I decided to do was I put them in the car and I drove them over to the projects. And we just spent some time watching the people who lived there. Where they lived, what they wore, what kind of car they drove. And so I turned to my kids and I said, I could stop working. And we could live here? Or I can keep working, and you can keep your private schools and your nice cars and your spending allowance. Which one would you choose? They were teenagers. What were they supposed to say? And even worse, what were the values that he was teaching them in that moment? So they responded You work, keep working there's ample research out there that talks about how based on a parent's interaction with their child it will affect that child's future for the rest of their life it's called attachment theory many of you may have heard of it i'm sure many of you have knowing the audacity of my listeners to know about relationship theories and relationship psychology but in attachment theory it really it really boils down to based on the consistency and the uh, quality of a parent's interaction with their child, one out of four outcomes that are kind of on a on a spectrum, will be the outcome. Either a child will be anxious when a parent is inconsistent in their. In their giving of, of what the child needs, or if a parent is completely disengaged and not giving of what a child needs, then, then that child could end up being more on the avoidant or anywhere in between on the spectrum of anxious and avoidant. But there's only one outcome that you want for your child, and it's that secure attachment. And if you boil all of the research down, secure attachment really boils down to one thing. It's a child believing that my mom or my dad is going to be there for me when I need them.
0: Episode 117 was released on August 30th, and this is Amanda Nybert on why dieting almost always fails.
4: I think a lot of people think they're putting a lot of effort into their health and wellness. And if you're not truly quantifying it, are you really? Mm -hmm. Um, alcohol is a big one. You know, I work with, um, a lot of, you know, women who, you know, socialize, they, um, are constantly, you know, going to events or, you know, especially summertime, there's lots of alcohol. The last two years, I think people are drinking more than we ever have been. And, you know, I'll tell people, um, 80, 20. So, you know, consuming alcohol 20% of a month is not Friday and Saturday. You know, um, it's not eight days a month, it's actually six days a month. So, uh, you know, if you actually quantify that, um, that's one of the things where people will be like, man, you know, I forgot about book club and I had a glass of wine there and I forgot about Funko and I had a glass of wine there and then, you know, Friday and Saturday. So, you know, at the end of the month, it allows them to go back and say, well, I thought, you know, I only drank 20% of the time. But when I really, you know, check all the boxes, I'm actually drinking 40% of the time. So, um, again, really kind of quantifying what that 80, 20 looks like, I think helps people Mm -hmm. to see where maybe their effort is lacking their goals, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so just to put it in perspective, like that's a good one. Alcohol, 20% of the month is, you know, six days in a 30, you know, a 30 day period. Um, but for example, let's say you eat three meals a day. That's 21 meals a week. So 17 is 80% of 21. So our goal is to make 17 meals a week dialed in, on track, aligned with our health and wellness goals. But three to four meals a week, we have flexibility, you know, we can eat the foods we enjoy, we can go out, we can, you know, do the things, those are the, the meals that um, are, are occasional, you know, things, not things that we do every day. So I think when people really start to put their habits into that perspective, it really shows them, you know, where am I succeeding and, and where am I struggling?
0: On October 4th, Kimberly was joined by Dr. Heather Thompson Day for Living in the Waiting, What to Do When It's Not Your Turn, episode 122.
2: How how do you help your attitude change and your heart change when you're struggling with maybe jealousy or comparison or any of those things?
7: Kimberly, let me clarify. I haven't gotten there, Mm. right? This is a tool that I use still to help me get there. I have yet. And I really, truly, I was just talking about this with my therapist recently. I really, truly believed that I was going to get to a place. And by the time the book came out, I thought, surely you are going to be at a place where you are just always happy for other people. And it never feels like a threat to you. I have not gotten there. I went to bed. I think it was a night last week where I posted a real, which is like so stupid. I know this is champagne problems, but I'm just going to be honest, I posted a reel and I could see right away, I had put a lot of time into it and I could tell right away the numbers weren't there. Right. I'm like, nobody's picking up what you're putting down right now. And I remember just rolling over to my husband and saying, this is so frustrating because Mm -hmm. I'll see somebody post like, you know, a bikini picture, fun in the sun and 5,000 likes immediately. Yeah. Right. And here I've spent two hours putting together a Bible study thought and nobody cares. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. And I, I let myself sit in that for a second. I voiced it out loud to my husband and then I, that was, that's part of my strategy now is being honest about it because once I name it, it doesn't have power over me anymore. Right. right. Like, Hey, I'm feeling jealous right now. I voiced it. And now what are you going to do, Heather? I'm going to have to let it go. Right. Right. What happens when we stop being sad about being sad? Sadness loses its power over us. It's okay, we are human beings. The goal is not for Heather or Kimberly or anybody listening to suddenly become absolutely perfect robots. It's impossible, so don't try. The goal is just to acknowledge what we're feeling and then say, okay, what are the tools that I have that can help me get through this emotion while it's here? Because it's not gonna last, nothing lasts, right?
0: From all the way back in episode 90, we had Veronica Grant on the episode about feeling whole, valued, and having self-worth, published on February 22nd.
2: When you think about this mindset that we get into of if I can only have this, like if I eat perfectly or if this person likes me back or, or all of that, where do you think fundamentally
6: that is coming from? So that is coming from how you learned to feel love, safety, or belonging. So love, safety, and belonging are things that all humans need to feel who are functioning normally. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so there were times in your life where you didn't feel love, safety, and belonging. So for some people, that might be very acute and very obvious. So I'm talking, you know, untimely deaths, um, abuse, trauma, divorce, like anything along those lines, like, there'll definitely be of times where you didn't feel love, safety and belonging. Um, but this is true of everyone. Even if you didn't experience acute trauma in your childhood, maybe it was just your mom wasn't really able to meet your needs emotionally. Like maybe you had these big emotions and she was a more reserved person. And so you never really felt um like you belonged in the family or that you never really felt safe sharing how you felt just because like she didn't know how to handle it or whatever. Um, So, so these things can These experiences can, um, create stories in your head of like, oh, well, in order to feel like I belong or in order to feel like my mom loves me, then I need to just act normal. I need to shut down my feelings and not worry about it and just, you know, worry about the family and other people and keep my. Felt focused somewhere else. You know what I mean? And so that just becomes the way in which you see the world and the way in which you learn to receive love, safety and or feel love, safety and belonging. And, and then without that getting looked at and unpacked and healed, when you're an adult, let's say you're wanting to be in a relationship, you might feel something. Um, sometimes it might be anger because someone did something wrong or crossed the boundary, or it might even be Love or other kinds of feelings, but you're scared to show that you don't want to show that because you've learned like, Oh, I need to just, you know, hide that part of me because otherwise I might scare them off or I might be too much. And so we have to go back to those old parts of ourselves where we learned how do we feel loved? How do we feel like we belong? How do we feel safe? And then really look at, okay, is that behavior reflective of how I want to live my life? Is it reflective of what's actually true? Maybe it was true when you were eight years old, that you had to kind of shut yourself down to, you know, get along with your mom or whatever, but you're not eight years old anymore. You're not living at your mom's house. And so you can experience the world and relationships in a different way. Um, So no one was born like being a people pleaser. No one was born, you know, thinking they're too much or too fat or whatever. These are all learned behaviors. And so we just have to go back and look at, okay, where are the times when I didn't feel like I was loved, safe, or like I belong? And then what behaviors did I create from those experiences. Hmm.
2: How difficult do you think it is for people to, uh, so I guess there's two parts to this. So the first one is for them to take the time and space to go back and think about when did I first feel that, what were the ways that I responded to it then? And then the second part is how difficult is it for them to change that reaction.
6: Yeah, so I think some it's hard because I think different people are wired to like personal development more than others. Um I think there is a reason why you know seven texts to get him to love you or see mm-hmm. you as wife material. I think there's a reason. I mean, first of all, I'm very curious. I would love to know what those texts are just because like what could they possibly be? I'm so interested. <laughs> so the reason i We know I don't work, <laughs> Of course. Of course like they provoke curiosity, but I also think mm-hmm. that um we kind of just want the easy button and that's the that's the yeah. world we live in, especially even I think it's the world we've always kind of lived in, but even more so with like mm-hmm social media and like Uber eats and like, I can have anything I want in like 20 minutes yeah. or Amazon, you know, or whatever. So it's probably gotten harder or worse to like, kind of get out of that mindset of like, Oh, easy button strategy or e- easy button fix. Um So I don't know if it's like the culture that we live in. So sometimes we have to deprogram or unhook ourselves from, from that. I don't think that this work is as daunting or as hard as, We think it is at the beginning. It's kind of like when you're about to like jump into a pool and you're like, Oh my God, it's so cold. It's going to be so cold. And then you jump in. It's like cold for a second. You're like, Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's not so bad. It's fine. Now that being said, there are, there are situations. There are people who have experienced, you know, like extreme trauma, like violence Mm -hmm. and abuse. Mm -hmm. And, um, at least for the work that I'm talking about, like I, I think that is a whole other level of, um, one-on-one support probably with more of like clinical therapy at least at the beginning sure. of that healing process that probably needs to take place before we do the work that i i'm talking about here um but i don't think it's as um as as daunting i would say the first step feels like it's doozy but then once you're in you're like oh <laughs> it's not so bad i can deal it i can deal with it
0: just one week before that on february 15th we had chris martin join the show to talk about cost of social media in episode 89.
2: Did you do any research on the way that our social media habits affect our brains like dopamine levels or other different types of hormones or mental health or anything like
5: that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did some research and every time I talk about this kind of subject I want to be careful to say that I'm not a psychologist uh, Mm -hmm. because I I just tried to learn from as many of them as I could as I was writing this stuff. Um, Yeah, I did plenty of research on this. Uh, There's so much data and science to show that social media is designed to be addictive. Mm. And the founders and creators of the modern platforms we use, like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Evan Spiegel of Instagram... um, have said as much like they, they've, they have mm-hmm. uh, explicitly said that these programs were designed to get us addicted. Um, like it's not a secret really. Now they're, they're not going to say it these days, but they said it early on and and that stuff has been maintained by the grace of God. And we, we know that that's how these things were designed. Sean, mm-hmm. if anyone's listening has ever seen the social network, the mm-hmm. movie about Facebook from like, Oh, or 2013 or so.
2: I Justin Timberlake uh, in it.
1: So I was just gonna say Justin Timberlake. Um, uh, I love Justin Timberlake. I was gonna make a joke, but I'm not. Uh, he's awesome. Um, he uh, he is his character is Sean uh, Sean Parker. Like he plays yeah. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. Well, the real life Sean Parker is is on record uh, saying this in an interview Mm -hmm. in 2017, he said the thought process that went into building these applications. So just imagine Justin Timberlake saying this. All right. Um, The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. So this is like, he was on the ground floor of Facebook and he's saying this. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while, because Mm -hmm. someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, and that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. And it's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you are exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors or creators, me, Mark Zuckerberg, Kevin Seistrom of Instagram. It's all of these people understood this consciously. And we did it anyway. So... Mm. um. Uh, that guy, Sean Parker, or, or Justin Timberlake, also created Napster. The Ironically, Justin Timberlake played him because he created the platform that robbed musicians of, of money. But he, he said that the, the whole point of this was to hook you, to keep you coming back. And that's how these platforms make money, because they're free. The real cost of social media is that we end up serving them and 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 giving them our content and our lives as a means of using them to express ourselves. So yeah, there's there's so much research out there by by actual great psychologists about um, just the behavioral psychology. Like, honestly, one of the saddest things about social media is that some of the most brilliant minds in behavioral psychology have kind of been focused on harvesting it for ad revenue. You know, like that, like in this way. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's a big deal and it, and it's very much there and and people should be aware of it.
0: Next, we have another episode from Kimberly published on April 4th. This is episode 96 How becoming spiritually attractive can change your heart.
2: What could it look like? What should it look like for you and for your life to live in line with your beliefs and values and stand strong in them? even when it's hard to do so. It's an important question. It's an incredibly important question. I've been reading several books over the past couple of months now. And one of them that has really challenged me in in a good way, but helped me to just see things a little differently or open my eyes a bit more is one called I believe it's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, I will let you know, I believe this author is a Christian, but he, he really looks backward into how we got to this place where we are right now in America, and really most of the Western world, where sex seems to be what everyone is chasing. Now, here's what I mean by that. When you look at a lot of the politics or the way that culture is going or goodness, I mean, even looking at movies or TV shows that we watch, when people think about wanting to be happy, that happiness, a lot of times is equated to sex. I want to be able to be with who I want to be have sex with who I want to when I want to how I want to where I want to, and not have any consequences of it. And the author even looks back into seeing how different politics, different literature, different art has has really begun, I mean, centuries past, painting this picture of maybe we shouldn't have a structure to our society. Maybe there is no validity to the nuclear family. Maybe we really should just focus on doing what makes me happy when what makes me happy is sex. Now, why am I bringing this up in this podcast about spiritual attraction and living in line with our beliefs and values? Because I believe fundamentally that the world is in a dire need for hope and for truth. And so much of what is out there right now, so much of what has probably formed your beliefs and values, so much of what has formed my beliefs and values may have been along the lines of do what makes me happy, or it may have been along, along the lines of how can we disagree, or how do we set ourselves apart from the people who are trying to do what makes them happy? And it's created this chasm. So let me speak even more even more clearly about it. As a Christian, and as someone who honestly loves Jesus. I can see how many Christians have have, have, have taken their belief of, of even things like waiting until marriage to have sex and then looked at, at people who did not hold those same beliefs and values. And instead of loving them, leaning into them, being friends with them, being there for them, instead of showing them the love of Jesus through how we treat them. Many times we instead like use the Bible and use scripture and use Jesus to beat these people over the head and damn them. That's how it feels like feel, condemn them for the actions that they're doing. And in, and it just creates a larger and a larger divide. And so many times when we talk about these spiritual beliefs and values, these these, this spiritual part of attraction and the beliefs and values that accompany those, there's the people who listen to the podcast or follow Mary Tulper or follow me, and they say, but I am not a Christian. How does this apply to me? I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But I first want to speak to the people who are Christians, who who are trying to figure out in this world, like, how do I take these beliefs and values that I have and, and live them out in a way where I'm not shunning people or excluding them or pushing them away? How do I love them even more? Because that's the goal for anyone, for, I, for any faith that's listening to this. It's not how do you become further involved in an echo chamber where all you hear are other people who echo your exact thoughts and beliefs right or wrong. Like that's not what makes us attractive individuals. And it's not the goal of living out our beliefs and values. The goal of being able to live out our beliefs and values is saying, I want to do something to help make the world a better place. And how can I do that? For me, unashamedly, it's Jesus. I, I want to be better at being a person who can share the hope and the love of Jesus, of the gospel, of what he has done for us, but do that in a way that is inviting and not condemning. Do that in a way that is loving and not hateful. Do that in a way that leans in and listens to people with curiosity, understanding their story, the pain that they've gone through in their past, and just being a friend to them instead of being one of those people who just is constantly disconnected from the person doesn't have a relationship with them, but is constantly just saying just pushing people to church or either using scripture to tell people they're wrong. Now, for the people who are not Christians or hold a different faith, then my encouragement and challenge for you is the same. Just just take it take the the Christian part out of it, but it's the same thing. How can you take, like, what are, what is the thing you want to give back to the world? What are the beliefs and the values that you hold true? And how can you do that in a way that is respectful, that is loving, that is encouraging, that, in, that incites friendship, that incites connection and relationship, because that is the goal. Spiritual attraction. When I feel my most spiritually attractive, it is when I'm feeling most
5: challenged.
0: This next episode is from all the way back in January, where we had Victoria Sotelo on episode 86. This is Cultivating Healthy Marriages and Sexual Intimacy.
2: What are some of the things that, that you would want couples to know in order for them to have better relationships outside of the bedroom Mm -hmm. so that they can have a better relationship inside the bedroom? Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah. So what, what do we need to know to have a better relationship outside of the bedroom and in the bedroom, right? How, how do I Mm -hmm. show up in my life outside of being connected to anyone else that impacts how I connect to other people? Mm -hmm. And the thought I have initially is that, you know, you first kind of have to own who you have been designed and created to be
4: Mm -hmm.
5: come to the awareness that your sexuality, your sexual healing and wholeness is not a separate part of you. It's integrated within you, understanding that um, every living being. Is able to connect right with senses, and that if you have decided to compartmentalize that aspect of your life, resist it, pretend it doesn't exist anymore, you you are going to actually be missing out not only in connecting with yourself, but with the other people that you have in your life, namely your 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 spouse or your partner, even your maybe your children. Um, mm-hmm. We find that you know first and foremost recognizing that pleasure is okay. A pleasure's not taboo right pleasure we experience in all sorts of ways right like a beautiful hot shower standing i just came back from cancun dipping mm. my I mean, that sand was like white clay sand, you know, the body's like butter after it's been rubbed on that. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. Floating in a, in a body of water or looking and witnessing at something incredible, the snow falling, the sunrise, the sunset. I mean, these are beautiful, pleasurable things, hearing the laughter of your child, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sharing a, 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 a moment of curiosity with a friend or a neighbor. I mean, there's so many ways to experience pleasure that are not necessarily uh, considered erotic, but yet mm-hmm. they tap into the senses that help you bring in erotic energy into your body. So first and foremost, just understanding that that's who you are. And unfortunately, we've lived in a culture that has maybe condemned or shamed even people's sexuality and that, you know, that Mm. as a woman or as a man, you feel or long for certain things. So I think that's first and foremost, understanding that um, you don't get to live completely out of balance your whole life and it not affect areas of your life. You don't get to focus only on work and becoming I mean, New York city, right. We're like a city on steroids. (laughs) You know, basically my clients will often be at work from seven in the morning, you know, post everything we've just gone pre pre going through everything. They used to be at work from seven in the morning till seven o'clock at night. And they're exhausted by the time they come. They don't have any time to give themselves attention, let alone their spouse or else. So I think it's kind of kind of understanding that, If I don't take the time out to connect with myself, and this is not from a place of being self-absorbed, but just Mm -hmm. aware, then I'm not really able to offer very much to other people. I'm going to be Mm -hmm. frustrated, agitated, Mm -hmm. annoyed, um, and that's the part of me they're going to get. Um, Or I'm going to be a martyr and kind of do everything for everyone else and then be kind of miserable when I'm in Mm -hmm. my own space. Yeah. And in that negative narrative. So I think first and foremost, it's about um, connecting back to self, remembering what made you laugh, mm-hmm. what brings a smile to your face, what lights your eyes up, what do you dream about, what do you long for, um, kind of touching back into what brings hope in your life, gratitude, waking up and just guiding the mindset to a place of just simple gratitude. Can That alone, by the way, we have some incredible research showing how that alone can really just reroute the entire day,
4: Mm -hmm.
5: a mindset of gratitude. And then when you utilize that within yourself, you bring that to your partner, right? So the first thing that I usually do at the beginning or end of my sessions is a verbal affirmation. And I just have my clients, they turn right to your husband, turn right to your wife. And what is one thing that you value or appreciate about your partner? This is for the clients who are coming in in what they would describe as a good relationship or the ones that can't stand each other anymore and could hope they never see each other again, right? Right. I encourage them to to push their mind past that point of, of fight or flight and use their conscious ability to really grasp for something that they can show value to in another person. And it's in doing that that you begin to understand how how infrequent that's being done. Yeah. Isn't that true? So that's, that would be the first thing I think I I think about just kind of connecting with the essence of who you are, your sexuality and your sexual health is not a separate aspect of who you are Yeah, we are mind, body, spirit. We're all integrated and interconnected. What goes on in my brain actually impacts my pelvic floor area. My, my, my sexual organs, are are activated by what i'm thinking about what i'm breathing in what i'm what i'm experiencing it impacts everything in the body
2: Mm.
5: so kind of bringing awareness to that and and one and maybe even getting curious opening a space for real curiosity because at some point sometimes we don't really want to know we think we already know there's nothing left to learn I know what they're going to say before they say it. I know that if I do this, what the outcome will be and pushing ourselves to a place of curiosity, especially in a long-term relationship. I met my husband when I was 17 years old and I mean, right. I could imagine that I could write every script for his life and finish any sentence, but I can't Mm -hmm. really cannot because he's evolving and he's shifting Mm-hmm. Even if it's in small, nuanced ways and I'd like them to be different, he's still shifting and evolving. And I need to offer the freedom of that space to another person.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: So to me, when when you think about sexual health, when I think about sexual health, I really think about shifting the mindset first more than anything else and altering and creating and carving out a space for curiosity and Newness and intrigue to show up in my life in a place where I don't really even think it can exist.
0: Our last clip on the show today comes from our most downloaded episode from this year. This is episode 107 When Trust is Broken and How to Rebuild It with Zach Brittle.
8: I have never, ever, ever seen a couple recover from a betrayal, a significant betrayal, when the harmed partner Mm -hmm. didn't say, I know I have a part of this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not their fault.
7: Right.
2: It's not
8: their responsibility. They're not, they, right. didn't, they didn't cause it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to participate in the process. And mm-hmm. so the way I often articulate this to people, as I say, you know, if, if you have a situation where person A says to person B, I don't trust you.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: And I'll hold my hands up, right? This is person A, this is person B. And the gap between my hands is the size of my head. The size of my head is painful. This is pain. Mm. Now this isn't as painful as this, as I spread my arms out and it's not as painful as this where I close it into my nose, right? Like, but there's a gap and the gap in trust because person A doesn't put tr- that's pain. Now, in order to minimize the pain, you have to minimize the gap. And that doesn't happen because one partner goes or the other partner goes, one partner says, okay, I'm a hundred percent accountable. You have all my stuff. I've surrendered my whole life to you. You am never going to make another mistake again. It also doesn't happen because the second person goes, okay, I forgive you, no big deal. Uh, let's just let it water under the bridge. It's going to go away, whatever. That Those two things don't work. They, they're just recipes for new disaster. The only way you can effectively close the gap is when person B, the one who's not trusted, builds their trustworthiness. They demonstrate honesty, transparency, accountability, or they show ethical actions. They show proof of alliance. But person A does have to build their capacity for trust. Mm-hmm. Person A does have to do the work of deciding to risk and to hope and to lean in um, if they want to, they don't actually have to, they can walk away if they want to, but if they want to stay in the relationship, they do have a responsibility. And when I say that word, I often mean ability to respond. They have a response ability Mm -hmm. to lean in and say, okay, I'm going to build my capacity. And it could be because they had alcoholic parents. It could be because their college, you know, lover cheated on them. It could be because they, got scammed by the Nigerian Prince. I mean, it could be anything that has diminished their own capacity for trust. They have to do that work. And sometimes that's individual therapy. Sometimes it's couples therapy. Sometimes it's yoga. Sometimes it's, you know, joining Al-Anon or whatever, but there is, there are ways that that person can demonstrate the sort of the, I'm also making decisions on behalf of the relationship thing. So that, Mm -hmm. I mean, here's the thing. When you look across the relationship and let's say person A, person B, again, my hands, uh, you know, there's a rope. If I'm pulling the rope, either one of you and it's dead weight, it's really hard. But if we're both pulling the rope, we accelerate that, mm-hmm. that closing the gap quite a bit. And it's part of it is comes because I can look across and know, I know they're doing the work too. Yeah. I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not isolated here. I know I'm not just the only one who has to fix this, um, that again is a recipe for disaster.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about the more difficult situation where there's the harmed party that is willing to do the work and to forgive Mm -hmm. and to trust again. But then there's the party doing the offending behavior that is not willing to Mm -hmm. do what it takes to rebuild trust. What do you do there?
8: I mean, what do I do as the therapist or what I do is like- as a therapist, who, 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 who am I? When I what, <laughs> what, your, what am I doing?
2: Like, let's identify. So you as a therapist, what would, what would your encouragement or how would you work with a couple in that situation?
8: Well, again, nobody's ever accused me of being inauthentic. And so I'm just, I'm just like facts. I'm like, Hey dude, mm. um, sorry about this, but it's not going to work if you don't, if you don't do the work, like it's just not, this is the waste of your time and your money. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a guy in my practice for a year, one year working on recovery from the affair Mm -hmm. and they must've, I don't know what they spent, but it was a lot. Mm -hmm. And a year later he got caught again, same, same situation, same girl, never cut it off, was pretending the entire time. And I was just like, um, sorry, sorry about this, but this is, you just wasted a year and let's just say 10 grand, like you just wasted a bunch of time and a bunch of money mm-hmm. because you weren't willing to do the work. For me, it's just, it's like very matter of fact, mm-hmm. I would rather have said to him and him had to have said a year ago, no, I think I'd rather get divorced and just be with this lady. That would have been better. That would have been a better use of his time and money, his wife's time and money, the whole situation. So part of it I think is just kind of holding up a mirror and that's where the science is really helpful. Like being able to pull on John's work and to Gottman's work and just mm-hmm. say, Hey, here's the deal relationships don't recover when X, Y, or Z. And let's say in the affair situation, when you try to maintain a relationship with the affair partner, mm-hmm. well, it doesn't happen. It's not not possible. So you well, can kind of want to and wish to, and I hope we can still be friends and, oh, but we still work together. And I'm like, yep, all of that is, all that's really noble. And I'm sure it's coming from a good place perhaps, but it's just not going to work. Yeah. And so what do I do is I just point to the, the precedent. Mm-hmm. Now, how do I get them to, like, how do I get them to do the work? That's a little bit of a different story, but I certainly start with n- no disillusion or no illusions, no illusions. Yeah.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And this is where it becomes, for me, very difficult, especially in the, in the work that we do. Cause we, we do, we work with a lot of affairs and a lot of the, um, Marriages that we see, there's one of the spouses currently involved in an affair. And from our end, we know at some point these intense feelings are going to end. Now, how they're going to end and when they're going to end, we can't necessarily say, but like – So from, from my point of view, it's how can we get the marriage to hang on long enough so that let's say it's the husband having the affair so that by the time the affair ends, the husband hasn't made the worst mistakes of his life that Mm -hmm. he was making while he was in the middle of this affair. Like how can we work towards, and we can't force him to do that, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for a couple that happens to go through our workshop, a lot of times when they learn about how affairs happen and, and uh, limerence and things like that, mm-hmm. they at least, they kind of pause. It kind of brings them back into cognitive dissonance and they're able to say like, hmm, maybe this isn't the decision I want to make for the rest of my life. But it's a difficult place to be as the Yeah, helper. I mean,
8: it's kind of like trying to talk to an alcoholic who right. hasn't hit their bottom, you know.
2: That's it. That's it. When Pete right. And you don't know when someone's actually hit their bottom. You could think like that's the bottom, but then they, Mm -hmm. they just keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's hard because I don't know if you're like me in this sense where it's like, you see where they're going, you see how this is going to end and it's not going to be pretty. And you know, if they would just do something different now, it would be better.
8: I don't know if I am like you in that regard. I mean, I think, um, I, I'm kind of amazed at, at, you know how Malcolm Gladwell talk, sort of talks about the 10,000 hours and like mm-hmm. once you've hit your 10,000 hours, you can sort of call yourself an expert. Mm-hmm. I definitely have my 10,000 hours, but I'm still at awe, in awe every single time of how each unique story is its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll call it the sort of profiles of infidelity, right? Because with infidelity in particular, you can have the one night stand with the call girl in Vegas. Mm-hmm. You can also have the secret family in Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. right? That you sort of uh, or sort of raising there's, and there's everything in between. And so for me, I want to get into as much as possible, sort of what is actually happening here. And it, and it, that is harder when, when, when either or both partners aren't willing to do the patient introspective work. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't really have any presumptions about where this is actually headed. Um, in part, because as you know, while it is rare, there are plenty of relationships out there right now that are happy, healthy relationships that are a result of an affair that, that came together. Um, And those stories have to have room to breathe and exist. I'm not advocating for that by any stretch of the imagination, but it does, it does mean that we have to be very tender with the actual human beings that are actually in the room and not just the sort of the supposition that this is where it's inevitably going. Um, you know, unless it does, of course, hit all of the. <laughs> I don't know if you have this experience, but I'm often very bored by people's affair stories. I'm <sighs> like, um, of course that happened. Of course you did that. Of course that's the thing. You know, um, like those people certainly script. have a little bit. What's that? It's
2: like following a script. Like,
8: yeah, yeah. yeah. Like doctors, and John, John, yeah. John, in the in the what makes love? What makes what makes love last? I think that's the uh, name I of the book. Yeah. There's a there's a whole section there what he that he calls the cheaters cascade. Mm -hmm. And it really is sort of this, like, if there's a map, this is it. And it begins with the idea that early, early on, before there was ever even the first bit of thinking about it, the relationship suffered a breakdown in just the two partners turning toward one another. Um, and that there wasn't a, there wasn't a consistent and reinforced sense that this is my person. And so, you know, I don't know if I'm making a point exactly, but I think that there's a, there's a, there's a want or a need to kind of make it simple, but it's, of course, it's always complicated.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, not only today, but for coming along on this journey with us in 2022. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as leave a review and join us next week for the last episode of this year. Until then, stay strong.